Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. This morning, we're going to be in verses 36 through 50. And we're going to be parachuting right into the middle of Jesus' ministry, into an occasion where he was invited by Simon the Pharisee to have a meal with him. So Jesus eating dinner with Simon, a seemingly normal, everyday occasion. Except, of course, that we're talking about Jesus, right? And that seemingly normal, everyday occasion would happen to be a meal that would lead to a moment of teaching that the Holy Scripture would inspire the, uh, Luke to write down for the sake of our faith. For it is at this meal that Jesus teaches this important truth, that truly forgiven sinners love much. You know, forgiveness for sin is a powerful thing. Billy Graham once said of forgiveness that it is the most beautiful word in the human vocabulary. And I agree, much because of what true forgiveness can do to our hearts. And so in this morning's message, we're going to see these two truths put together. Number one, our need for forgiveness. And number two, that God desires for us to be filled up with love, both toward God and toward others. And that he especially desires for us to be filled up with the kind of love that he himself has for us, expressed through his forgiveness of us. And the key for both of these truths being put on display in our lives is that we know how great our need for forgiveness really is. So there are three main parts to this passage. So the background is that Jesus gets invited to eat in the home of a Pharisee named Simon. And there in part number one, we see a sinful woman will come to Jesus and wash his feet with her tears and then anoint him. And we'll see that in verses 37 through 38. And then we'll see in, in part two that this evokes a reaction in Jesus' host, Simon. And we'll see that in verse 39, where Simon will dismiss reports that are making their rounds about Jesus being a prophet, maybe being the long-hoped-for Messiah, because to the Pharisee Simon, apparently Jesus doesn't realize that this woman is a sinner. And then responding to this in part three, Jesus will tell the Pharisee a parable, and then he will apply it directly to Simon and to the woman. So let's walk through these three main parts. So look with me, beginning at verse 36. The text says, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table at the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair and kissed his feet and anointed him with the ointment. So in verse 36, we're told that a Pharisee, we later find out his name to be Simon, has invited Jesus into his house to eat with him. And the Pharisees, if you don't know this, they're a leading sect of Judaism during the earthly life of Christ, and they are famously, or maybe better, infamously known for strictly following the laws of Judaism, even more so than any other significant movement during the life of Christ. Although not all Pharisees were opposed to Jesus and his ministry, the Pharisees are rarely portrayed in a positive light in the New Testament. So much so that the word Pharisee or Pharisaical in the English language has come to refer to a hypocrite or to someone who is self-righteous. And that's the subject matter that comes up just before this passage. So in the context, 
That's where Jesus there refers to the Pharisees' opposition to John the Baptist, the one who went before the Messiah, the one who was a voice crying out in the wilderness. John the Baptist was calling on sinners to repent, to realize their sinfulness and their need for the gospel, but the Pharisees rejected the call of John the Baptist and so rejected his baptism. And so Jesus will say of the Pharisees in verse 30 that they rejected the purpose of God for them, not having been baptized by him. These Pharisees were meant to be guides to Israel. They were meant to be leaders of the true faith. But they had become blind guides by their willful opposition to John the Baptist. John's baptism was one of repentance. And so we see again and again in the heart of the Pharisees that they do not see their own sinfulness. And as a result, they do not see their need for repentance or their need for a savior. Their biggest problem that's getting in the way of their need for the gospel is their hypocrisy or their self-righteousness, which Jesus seeks to expose again and again. And the fact that Jesus wants to do that, the fact that he does expose it is actually a gracious thing. But ironically... For them, again and again, their hypocrisy gets in the way. And they'll often turn around things that when what Jesus says, what others say, to accuse the very people that are calling on them to see their sin and their need for Jesus. And so they do this in verse 34 in the context. They will say of Jesus, he's a glutton, he's a drunkard, he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So in saying things like this, the Pharisees not only rejected Jesus as the Messiah, but they self-appointed themselves as the lawgiver instead of God. They self-appointed themselves as judges against Jesus rather than seeing Jesus as the judge. But this meal is another occasion on another day. It's another opportunity. And so this Pharisee named Simon invites Jesus to dine with him. We're not explicitly told the reason why Simon wanted to meet with Jesus, Simon wanted to eat with Jesus, but it could be that Simon just really wanted to find out for himself what he thinks about Jesus, who he thinks Jesus really is. Now, so this is a dinner occasion, so they're eating together, but as you know, in uh, different cultures, there's different ways that people have banquets, there's different ways that people eat together. So let me give you a little background about a meal like this. First, we're told that they're reclining. So they're sitting down, reclining on couches, somewhat similar to like a chase lounge chair. And so this indicates that the meal is either a banquet or a Sabbath meal. It could also be a, a synagogue service meal after the, after the synagogue service. So it's an important meal, more than your average meal. It's more than just two men going out together to have coffee together and talk over things. So for Sabbath meals, it was also common that a rabbi would be invited, a chance to talk with him further after what he has taught about. And, you know, if it's a a banquet meal, it could be that Jesus was invited because of the reports that were going around, that he could have been a prophet or perhaps that long hoped for Messiah. Either way, a Sabbath meal or a banquet meal fits the occasion in the passage. And so similarly, at these kind of meals, you would also have uninvited guests often show up. And that's because the meal would be out in the open. And so here you have this woman that's not invited. She comes, she has a chance to be fed, and she interrupts the meal, as well as you have uh, people in the background in an audience that come up later. 
And so as a result, I think it's appropriate for us, since this was written down in the scriptures, is to imagine ourselves being there, being uninvited guests, listening in on what's going on, to see this interaction between Jesus, the sinful woman, and Simon unfold. So here's what scripture says happened. Verses 37 through 38 introduce us to the woman of this passage and what she would do. And by the way, there's actually been a a lot written about this woman throughout church history, about her identity. Going back to the influence of Gregory the Great, who was a pope during the 6th century, uh, he said that this woman and the woman in this passage was Mary Magdalene. And so as a result, many people have thought that this woman is Mary Magdalene. And there are parallel accounts that seem similar according to Gregory, Matthew 26, Mark 14, and John 12. And so he said that these must be the same event. But despite some of those similarities that are there, there's no real good exegetical reason to consider those passages to be parallel accounts, to be harmonized. Rather, they should be thought of to be separate, different accounts. And so, this Mary Magdalene, it could be her, but there's no reason in the text to think that it's her, or to think that it's Mary of Bethany, who's the sister of Martha and uh, the sister of Lazarus. And so, I think it's better that we not even give a name to this woman, just as Luke doesn't give a name to this woman. So, what do we know about her? Well, we know that she is a woman of the city, a sinner. So that's who she is. That's the description right now in her life that the Gospel of Luke gives her. That's the description that the Holy Spirit through the Holy Scriptures gives her at this time. She's a woman of the city. This means that she's well known to the town to be a prostitute. And however she found herself to be in that life, whether tragically or of her own choice or some combination of that, we're not told, but we can at least say this. Prostitutes, just as they were, would be considered today, back then were also considered to be especially sinful in the fact that they made their living off of their sexual immorality. Their whole lives revolved around their sinfulness. And so society as a whole did not want to cozy up to that way of life and didn't want to have anything really to do with a woman involved in that. So in other words, if there was a bouncer at this banquet... His job would have been to go up to her, interrupt her, and tell her that she's not welcome there. But that's not what happened. The bouncer is MIA. So Luke instead tells us that three different things happened as a result. Number one, she wants to be near to Jesus. She wants to be near to Jesus. So let's think about that. Notice what it doesn't say about her. The text doesn't say that she felt deserving to be with Jesus, so she went up to him, or that she felt important enough to be with Jesus, and so she went up to him. Instead, she no doubt doubt felt the very opposite of these things. As a sinner, she wants to be near to Jesus. As a sinner, she recognizes her need for him. And even though she is in a place where she would generally be unwanted, She wanted to take whatever steps possible that she could take in order to get close to him. So here's the thing, too. You heard the text read, and we know the rest of the story. We know that she wanted to be close to him, wanted to be near to him, because she believed the reports about Jesus. 
She believed that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus could forgive her. And so she did the very thing that she knew she must do in order to meet Jesus. She just goes right up to him. And so just a a quick point of application here. Over the years that I've been in ministry, I've talked with many people who feel undeserving of the grace of God. And as a result, they actually do the opposite. They keep their distance from Jesus. They keep a distance from the church. The truth is, is that we are all undeserving of grace. We are all undeserving of forgiveness. The fact that we as sinners, especially if we understand just how sinful we really are, like this woman knows to herself to be, it means that we need forgiveness and that we cannot demand it as if we're entitled to it. But here's the problem with that feeling of unworthiness coupled with a shame that keeps us from coming to Jesus. The problem is, is that Jesus is willing, he's able, he wants to, and he loves to forgive. That's what he came for. He came to purchase us, to redeem us by living a perfect life in our place, by dying an atoning death on the cross for us. He came to demonstrate to us mercy, grace, and a willingness of God to forgive us of all of our trespasses. So keeping our distance from Jesus won't do us any good. And more time trying to work on ourselves, trying to get our life turned around won't work either. Instead, like this woman, we should come to Jesus now. We should come to Jesus daily. If you know someone that struggles with both this feeling of unworthiness and thinking that they must make themselves right first, encourage them with this passage Come to Jesus now as a sinner, and he will work on your heart. He will change who you are. He will forgive you. So this woman, she approached him, and then the second thing happened. As strange as it must sound to us today, she began to weep in front of him, and then her tears just falling down from her face, they fall onto Jesus' feet. And so she began to wipe them up with her hair. She began to dry his feet with her hair. It's like it's the only thing she could think to do in the moment. And yet the Bible describes this remarkable act as being one of washing Jesus' feet. So the point here is that she feels utterly humbled and she wants to do whatever she can in her state right then to show that she loves Jesus and to show her belief in him. And no doubt Christians should think of in this moment, be reminded of the fact that Jesus himself humbled himself to wash the feet of his own followers. He did so as a means of showing us love and as an example for followers to show how we should lovingly serve one another, how we should think about each other. He gave us a pattern of how we should show love and service to one another again and again. And then the third thing this woman does is she anointed Jesus' feet. This is actually the first thing that's mentioned, but it gets interrupted by her tears. And so she washes Jesus' feet and then tries to resume it. She couldn't finish her desired task, but that anointing shows two things. Number one, the, the ointment itself or the perfume must have been valuable, especially in the fact that it was in an alabaster jar. And number two, it, in that anointing of Jesus pointed to not only his worth and value, but also her great love for Jesus. 
So this is a, a remarkable picture. It's an amazing thing to just watch in your, in your mind as you're that uninvited guest that's there. But this beautiful moment gets interrupted. Not out loud, but by the thoughts of Jesus' host, Simon. Look at verse 39. It says, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. So here's the Pharisee's verdict about Jesus. Simon will dismiss the reports that are making the rounds about Jesus being the prophet, even more so about Jesus being the Messiah, because right now, apparently to Simon, Jesus doesn't know, or worse, he doesn't seem to care that he's associating with a sinner, with a great sinner like this woman. So this whole event is disturbing to Simon. It's unseemly to him. It's like he's thinking to himself, how could Jesus do such a thing and also be someone special? Someone that I should care about enough that I should follow him. And notice how Luke tells us about Simon's rejection of Jesus. He makes his judgment against Jesus in his heart or to himself, inwardly to himself. Now, what the Pharisees are generally known for is this outward thing called hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is something that's seen in actions. Actions that are contrary to one's stated beliefs or attitudes. But hypocrisy is actually a symptom of what's going on in the heart. The Pharisees are actually tombs. Their hearts are tombs. It was their hypocrisy that make those tombs whitewashed. It was their hearts that were the tombs. So that Simon rejected Jesus in his heart, it would have borne fruit in time, but Jesus doesn't wait for that fruit to come out. Instead, he knows what's going on in his hearts, in his heart, he knows this judgment that Simon is making inwardly against him. And so Jesus instantly knew this perfectly, and so he acts upon it. Now, the question is, is why does Simon do this? Why is he rejecting Jesus in his heart? Well, we can answer this two different ways. The first is from Simon's self-rationalizing perspective. And we saw that in the context of the passage. The Pharisees and the lawyers of verse 34 are looking at how Jesus is living his life. And they're judging that he cannot possibly be a prophet. They're judging instead he must be a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of sinners and tax collectors. And so Simon may have wanted to see this for himself. He wanted to judge for himself who Jesus was. But he reaches this very same conclusion in his heart. He's thinking, here he is. Now I see it with my own eyes. Jesus is a friend of sinners, so he's corrupt. At best, he's self-deceived about being the son of man. At worst, he's a liar and a deceiver of the people. At any rate, he's someone that must be rejected. And so at this moment, Simon thinks that he's making a sound judgment. But he's dead wrong. And it's a tragic error. And it's a great sin. You know, people want to think that following your heart is the safest way to live life, the safest way to judge truth, the safest way to determine what you believe. But here is a man who, following his own heart, has placed his soul in eternal danger. 
We want to follow our hearts, but Scripture teaches us that there is a great problem with our heart. And it makes it clear using different images. Now, when we talk about the heart according to the Scripture, what we mean is the human will, or perhaps even better, we mean something like who we really are, the seat of our being. Of the images of the problem of the heart that Scripture gives, let me give you two of them. The first is hardness or stubbornness of heart. And this is a spiritual condition of persistent stubbornness or unresponsiveness to the Word of God, which, if left unchanged, can rise to a level of rejection or even hostility. This kind of hardness of heart is referred to in Jeremiah 13.10, and it says this, This evil people who refuse to hear my words, who stubbornly follow their own heart, have gone after other gods and gone after them to worship them. And this is the same thing that was going on when people rejected Jesus. The reports that Jesus may be the Messiah were making the rounds because Jesus was doing signs and wonders. He was making known to people who he really was. But John chapter 12 tells us that though he did so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord who has believed what he has heard from us. So that's hardness of heart. The other image I'll give you is the image of a sick or a diseased heart, the sin-sick heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So in this sense, the heart is so badly corrupted that it cannot be trusted to make true, rational judgments, especially spiritual ones. So Simon the Pharisee has a heart problem. And the reality is, is that Simon cannot change his heart. No one can on his own. He can't correct it. Simon should be like the woman, drawing near to Jesus in tears, seeking forgiveness. Instead, he's self-deceived to thinking that he can judge Jesus, thinking that Jesus doesn't need to be his Savior. In fact, Jesus may be a sinner. But Jesus not only knows Simon's heart, but he's also the only one that can correct it, who can make Simon's heart new. And so Jesus wanted to do some work on Simon's heart. So here's what he does. Jesus brings Simon's private heart thoughts out into the open. How would you like that to happen to you? (laughs) He brings it right out into the open. And then he tells a parable, and then he applies the parable directly to Simon and also to the woman who's there. And ultimately, he does that for the sake of us all. So let's read it now. Verse 40. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love more? That's a two-verse parable. Verse 43. Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And so now comes the application, starting in verse 44. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears, and she wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, 
But from the time I came, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So with the woman still there, the subject of Jesus' acceptance and the subject of Simon's rejection, Jesus wants to teach Simon something very important through a parable. Now, a parable is a short story, sometimes very short like this one. It's a short story that's told as an illustration or a lesson with a specific point in mind. Very simple. But as a result, it can often be misapplied if you don't know where the parable teller is coming from. And they can be misapplied, especially in the case of Jesus' parables, if Jesus doesn't graciously make known the application. And Jesus, of course, he reveals truth and he hides truth with his own purposes. And he handles things differently on different occasions. But here, he tells the parable, he lets it know what it means, and he applies it right there in the conversation. So this parable has to do with a certain money lender and two debtors. The two debtors had big differences in terms of their amount that the, of debt that they owed. One owed 500 denarii, which is equivalent to nearly two years worth of wages to your average worker. But the other owed about two months worth of wages. But despite the differences in the debt, neither one could pay the debt. And when it came time to repay, Jesus makes that clear. They could not repay. So neither debtor could repay what they owed. And so then surprisingly and happily for these two debtors, the moneylender just benevolently forgives the debt of both completely. So they are not debtors anymore. They are now free of the debt. They are debtors no more. Jesus then asks for Simon's reaction to this question. Now, which of these forgiven sinners or forgiven debtors that the moneylender has forgiven their debt, which of them will love more? And Simon answers just as you or I probably would have answered. He's a little flat-footed. He's not sure what to say, but he says, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt would love more. Reminds me of Nathan's parable that he told to David after David's sin with Bathsheba. And Jesus affirms Simon's answer. He says, you've judged rightly. So when Jesus says this to Simon, here's what he means. Okay, you get the meaning of the parable. Do you understand how it applies? Well, he doesn't yet get the application. So Jesus says effectively, let me tell you how this applies. But he does so by talking to the woman. He brings her into the conversation. And speaking to her through speaking to Simon, he says, Simon, do you see this woman? You see her? Simon, I entered into your house. This is your place. You didn't give me any water to cleanse my feet. You gave me no kiss. You didn't anoint my head with oil. And it's not really that Jesus was necessarily expecting all of those things to go on. But what Jesus didn't expect is for Simon to dismiss him because of his acceptance of this woman. He didn't expect Simon to dismiss Jesus in his heart over such a scene that should have actually provoked love out of Simon. 
So this is a very powerful statement by Jesus. Simon, you rejected me by judging me. If you had loved me, you would have accepted me. But this woman, she did all of these things. She washed my feet. She kissed me. She wept. And she anointed my feet. Now Jesus then gives his rightful judgment. In verse 47, he says, Simon, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Simon, I tell you, her sins are forgiven. Now, Jesus knew that she was a sinner. Simon thought maybe she didn't. Jesus knew that she was a sinful woman, just as Simon knew. Jesus knew that her sins were many, just as Simon knew. But they are forgiven because Jesus forgave them. What led the woman to come to Jesus? Well, she believed the reports about him. She knew that she was a great sinner. She knew that Jesus had a heart to show compassion, to forgive. She knew that Jesus had the power, the authority to help her. And so in short, she knew Jesus could save her. She knew she needed salvation. Unlike Simon, her response wasn't one of rejection of Jesus. She went to Jesus. Knowing that she was a great sinner, yet she could be greatly forgiven. And so it provoked out of her a great love. But for Simon, the verdict is very different. Jesus says, he who loves little forgives little. You know, at this moment, at least for Simon in his life, we can interpret Jesus to say, if you don't think you need forgiveness, then you're not going to love or accept Jesus. Simon's rejection of Jesus has to do with Simon thinking that he doesn't need forgiveness at all, that he doesn't need Jesus at all. Therefore, Simon doesn't love Jesus. That he doesn't think that he needs forgiveness means that he doesn't have forgiveness. Now, when I was uh, fresh out of high school, I got to go on a summer mission trip, and I went to uh, British Columbia to a small town up there. I actually got to do this three different times in my college years. Uh, I went to be a door-to-door evangelist uh, with a church. And I have a lot of neat stories from that time uh, of how the Lord was working, but I also had one of the strangest things happen to me in my entire life. And that strange thing is I knocked on the door of a house, and I was invited in by this sweet older lady. And um, I walk in, and I want to share the gospel with her. And I, I start to ask her, I was, like, I was like, are you a sinner? And assuming that she would say yes, but this old elderly lady, she was 87 years old, looked at me straight in the face and said, I've never sinned, ever, never, ever. And I didn't know what to do about that. <laughs> I, I was thinking, well, I walked through some of the Ten Commandments. Nope, never. I've never sinned. Now, it's been over 20 years. This woman is not alive anymore, most likely. What I didn't really understand how to help her to think about this back then or how to interpret what she was saying, what she was really saying is, son, I do not need what you have to offer me. I do not need Jesus. I do not need your gospel. And so I I left. She was a woman who thought she didn't need Christ's forgiveness. Well, at this point, Jesus turns aside to the woman and speaks directly to her in verse 48. And says, your sins are forgiven. 
And this leads the crowd to wonder out loud or wonder in their own hearts about Jesus, who is this who even forgives sins? And that's a very big and very important question that Luke doesn't really answer here. But the answer really is implicit, is that if Jesus really can forgive sins, then he must really be the son of God. That's why he can forgive sins. Just as the moneylender had the authority to forgive the debts, so Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. But if you need to know how it's explicitly taught in the New Testament, it's found just a few chapters over in Luke chapter 5, where Jesus heals a man who is lame, and his healing of the man demonstrated his authority also to forgive sins. The theological point here is that Jesus, if he can reverse one of the effects of the fall, then he is able to heal all affirmities and therefore is able to heal what caused the infirmities are sin. He's able to forgive sin. So Isaiah 53, 4 says this, Surely he took up our pain and our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. You have the sins forgiven and things that are needing to be healed put together in the same place. But why does Jesus forgive this woman? It's because he wanted to, right? And because of her faith. So the Pharisee's heart was one of dismissal of Jesus, leading toward this outward works of hypocrisy, thinking that he didn't need Jesus, thinking of himself as self-righteous. But the woman's heart was one of faith in Jesus, and so she utterly depended on him for her salvation. So Jesus says to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So this woman, identified as a woman of the city, is no longer a woman of the city. She's no longer a great sinner. She's now a forgiven woman. She's a follower of Jesus. We don't know her name, but her identity is Christian. She's a Christian. She placed her faith in Jesus. Jesus truly saved her, and she greatly loved him for it. And we don't know really what happened to Simon, how he thought about this, whether he came to faith later. Over the past few weeks, I've been reading a a biography of John D. Rockefeller by Ron Chernow. It's a fascinating biography. Um, One of uh, Rockefeller's most ardent opponents um, was an investigative journalist named Ida Tarbell. Um, She liked to call John D. Rockefeller's company, the Standard Oil Company, the Octopus. And so the octopus was a name given because she thought that it threatened to take over everything else in its power just to try to grab more money. So this image of an octopus is what I have in mind when I consider this problem of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness likes to wrap its tentacles around the heart and likes to cut off our sense of need for forgiveness and therefore squeezes out any space for love for Jesus. So we don't know what became of Simon after this meal. We just know that prior to Jesus telling this parable is that his heart was hardened to the gospel. And that's a condition that only Christ can change in him and anyone else. But the reality is, is that Christ loves to change people's hard hearts. Hebrews 8.10 says, I will put the law in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. The beginning of this change of heart is what we also call being born again. 
And this is a work of God, so therefore glory goes to God alone. And as it says in 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let's think through some applications. First, just as Jesus knew the hearts of Simon the Pharisee and of this woman, he knows our heart too. And that's good to know. We can't hide who we really are from Jesus. The question for each one of us is, is our heart a place of faith in Christ, of love for our Savior, or is it a place of self-righteousness or not wanting Jesus? If you're here this morning and you know that you're not a Christian, know that Christ knows your heart right now. And he can change your heart. Come to faith in Christ. Know that self-righteousness cannot save you, works cannot save you, but repentance of sin and faith in Jesus can save you. Jesus is the one who loves us first, and that's 1 John 4, 19. And then we're told in 1 John 4, 10, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We love because of his love. And so it says in 1 John 4 as well, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And then second, it's important to know that we're all sinful. Just as sinful as this woman herself knew, but Simon didn't know. You will not love Jesus as you ought to if you do not know this. And conversely, though you will not grow in your love for Jesus if you um, or conversely, you will grow in your love for Jesus if you grow in knowing this. And this, of course, doesn't mean that we're flattening sin or making all sins to be equal, but we need to know that we are great sinners in need of great love from Jesus, and we should be loving Christ every day because of what he has done for us. You will not go to Jesus unless you realize your need for him. You will not love Jesus unless you realize your need for him. Once you've realized your need for him, you should actually realize more and more your need for him as you walk with him. You'll never stop needing Jesus. And in knowing him, your love for him ought to grow more and more, greater and greater as the days go by. As John Newton, the hymn writer of Amazing Grace, said in his old age, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are great sinners, every single one of us. Christ is a great Savior. In fact, Christ is a greater Savior. We are so thankful that though we were lost in our sins and trespasses, that Christ died for us, that Christ came for us, Father, the sin of self-righteousness is not one that anyone really brags about, but it can be something that is in our hearts. It's something that's below the surface. I pray, Lord, that you would lovingly root it out in every way, that we wouldn't be judgmental, but instead be loving, loving of you, especially loving of our brothers and sisters in Christ, but also that it would give us a compassion for people who are lost, who need hope and who need you we pray lord that you would lovingly apply this message to our hearts from the scriptures and we thank you for writing it down through your holy spirit we pray this all in jesus name amen